Yasas. Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast about all things Greek for Greeks, Hellenophiles, and anybody who's interested in learning about other cultures. I'm Pamela Diardis Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. Just a heads up. A little less than halfway through this episode, staticky noises appear occasionally. We were using one of our new clip-on microphones, and they're great, but I was wearing a loose sweater, and I thought with my hands. So while we were recording, the sweater kept brushing up against the microphone as I gesticulated. So hopefully we won't have any more problems going forward in future episodes, and thanks for your patience. Few topics fuel as much passion and emotion for Greeks as the ownership of the Parthenon marbles. The marbles were taken from Greece in the early 19th century, literally broken and torn off of the walls of the Parthenon by self-important Skataki, little Scottish Lord Elgin, without the permission of the Greek people. He later sold them to the British Museum to pay off his debts. They've been the centerpiece of the museum's collection for over 200 years. The dispute over the marbles between Greece and Great Britain has been in the news a lot the last few years. Britain refers to them as the Elgin marbles, which is both inaccurate and insulting. Kind of like referring to Raphael's portrait of a young man stolen during World War II as the Hitler painting. But what is all the fuss about? What are the Parthenon marbles, and why has Greece been fighting to get them back from the British Museum for over 200 years? To fully understand the importance of the marbles, we're going to explain why they were created in the first place. We're going to talk about the Parthenon, the temple where the marbles were housed for over 2,500 years, 2,500 years, before the peevish little Scottish lord took advantage of a war and the window it gave him when the Ottoman Empire needed Britain's help against a French invasion of their territories. In following episodes, we'll talk about how the marbles came to be in the hands of a racist little backwater lord who wanted to impress his peers by decorating his Scottish estate with the most cherished and admired statues and ornaments in the history of Western civilization, and how racist and patronizing attitudes and arguments have prevented them from being returned to their rightful home in Greece. But for now, I'll contain my ire and delve into the creation of these breathtaking works of art and the building that housed them that still influence and amaze artists, engineers, and educators all over the world. As a child, I didn't understand what the marbles were. I thought they were those little round glass balls the little rascals played with. I didn't know why everyone around me got so excited about them. It wasn't until I was older that I understood the marbles meant the beautiful marble statues that adorned the Parthenon and the Acropolis of Athens, the birthplace of democracy, the pride of every Greek. I have never visited a Greek home that didn't have an embroidery, a painting, a photograph, a mosaic, or a plaque of the Parthenon proudly hung on the wall at the center of family life, so we would all grow up knowing how important it was. But what is the Parthenon, and why did the Greeks build it, and then fill it with awe-inspiring sculptures that have been studied, imitated, and marveled over ever since? I'm going to give you the cheat sheet version of events leading up to the creation of what has been called the Icon of Western Civilization. During the 6th century BCE, the Greek city-states were fighting for their lives. The Greeks weren't unified into one nation, 
Each city and its surrounding provinces had their own governments, and they didn't always get along. But now they were facing a common threat, the Persians. The Persian Empire was huge and powerful and quickly pushing its way toward Europe. Emperor Darius already controlled Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Egypt. He wanted to conquer all of the known world, including Greece. Any who resisted were crushed ruthlessly. The Persians ultimately encroached on and swallowed up what had been Greek cities all along the coast of Asia Minor. Darius then began taking the Greek islands and preparing for the invasion of mainland Greece. In one of their more successful attacks in 480 BCE, Persia invaded Athens and leveled the buildings on the Acropolis, including Bronze Age temples and what many historians believe to have been an attempt at honoring the goddess Athena, with a temple now referred to as the Old Parthenon, still under construction at that time. The buildings were looted and burned. This was the citadel of Athens, its highest and strongest position for the city's defense. And according to Bruce Clark in his history, Athens, a city of wisdom, the entire Acropolis was considered sacred by the Greeks. Quote, it was not just the structures on top of the citadel that were invested with holiness. It was a shocking, humiliating, terrifying defeat. And robbing and destroying the temples? The Greeks had strong religious beliefs. Clark said they had a highly charged sense of the spiritual. Their places of worship had been defiled and razed to the ground. After this traumatic episode in 478 BCE, the Athenians organized and led a league of between 150 and 300 Greek states called the Delian League. Its purpose was to band together the Greeks to push back the Persians and defend Greek territory, which they did in a series of battles between 478 and 449 BCE, including the epic Battle of Marathon. It was a David and Goliath scenario, beating back the much larger forces of the Persians. They were kind of screwed down the road, but that's a story for another episode. After the Greek success repelling the Persians, Athenian general and statesman Pedicles came up with the plan to build the Acropolis Monuments Complex to honor the gods. These included the Temple of Athena Niki, Niki was the winged goddess of victory, the Erechtheum, dedicated to Athena and Poseidon, and the great gate to the Acropolis. But the centerpiece, which would be visible to all of Athens at that time, would be the Parthenon, a majestic temple in tribute to its protector, Athena, for saving Greece from the onslaught of the Persian forces. Clark says the whole complex erected on the Acropolis was a great statement of homage and thanks to Athena, while also honoring other deities. Cover your bases. All of Greece venerated the goddess Athena, goddess of wisdom, battle strategy, and handicrafts like weaving, which sounds like a strange combination, but our ancient deities were versatile and well-rounded. It would have been Athena that all of the city-states prayed to as they set out for battle. As the goddess of battle strategy, it was assumed it was her influence that won the day against Darius and his armies. All of Greece loved her, but Athens was her city. It was only right for Athens to be the home of the greatest monument ever built in her honor. To build the Parthenon and the surrounding monuments, Pericles didn't demand tribute from the people, which was kind of the typical way of doing things in the ancient world when hotshot government leaders decided they needed to put up showy monuments. The money had to come from somewhere. And then, like now, that meant the citizenry. But in a city that was gaining increasing democratic reforms, the people of Athens voted for the construction of the temple 
to the tune of 469 silver talents, what would be the equivalent of $7 million today? To give an idea of the burden the Athenians chose to take on, the annual gross income of the city has been estimated at 1,000 talents. The centerpiece of the Parthenon, once it was complete, would be an enormous statue of the patron goddess. The temple was designed to give her a lavish home. Clark says it was not meant to be a place for prayer or sacrifice. That happened outdoors nearby. It was meant to be a building that housed a sacred statue whose creation and installation was in itself an act of piety. Athena was a virgin goddess. She never married or gave birth. Parthena in Greek means virgin or maiden. Today it's one of the titles Christian Orthodox use when referring to the mother of God. Parthenon, Partheni, or Parthenonas, refers to the temple of the maiden. It was built to house the 40-foot tall, or 12.2 meters tall, statue of the goddess created by the sculptor Phidias from ivory and gold. We'll hear more, a little more about Phidias later. It must have been spectacular. According to an account written by second-century historian Pafsanias, Athena wore a gold helmet and a gold tunic reaching to her feet, like, like literally made out of gold. She gripped a golden spear in her left hand with a snake curled against it, maybe representing the half-snake, half-human she fostered who later became a king of Athens. Her gold shield lay at her feet. She held in her other hand a golden statue of victory, Nikki. Her bare arms, throat, and face were ivory. She stood on a slab of marble with the mythological story of Pandora carved into it. Greek reporter describes a shallow tank of water embedded in the marble floor in front of the statue. Quote, this had the dual benefit of reflecting light into the chamber and maintaining a moist atmosphere to best preserve the ivory. It was a natural spotlight and preservative for the goddess. The statue stood in the Parthenon for over a thousand years. Its ultimate fate is unknown. Scholars believe it may have been taken to Constantinople and destroyed sometime after the Byzantines declared Christianity the official religion of the empire and later outlawed paganism around the fifth century. Like all dictators, Christian dictators were about destroying the competition. Not a very Christian thing to do. Or the statue may have been found in storage and dismantled and scrapped for the expensive materials by the Ottomans when they took Constantinople. The Ottomans didn't think much of Greek history. Their MO was to place, replace Greek culture with their own. So no one knows for sure what happened to 40-foot Athena. It was never recorded. Although personally, I kind of think if the Christian dictator had destroyed it, he probably would have made a big stink about it. Like, look what I did. Take that, pagans. Luckily, there were smaller replicas made, and there were very detailed descriptions of it in the writings of first century historian Plutarch and Pafsinias. Nashville, Tennessee has a replica housed in their famous replica of the Parthenon. If you've ever watched the movie Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, Percy and his friends visited the Nashville Parthenon. It's kind of cool. The original temple, the original Parthenon, was built between 447 and 432 BCE during the Golden Age of Greece. Pedicles contracted two of the most famous architects of that era, Callicrates and Ictinus, designed it and the other monuments that would stand on the Acropolis. Callicrates had designed and built magnificent temples throughout the Greek world for Apollo, Poseidon, Ares. 
Ictinus had designed the Temple of Apollo Epicurius and the Temple of Mysteries at Eleusina. They were top guns in the world of fabulous Greek architecture. When it was completed, the Parthenon was the largest Doric-style temple of its time. It has a 23,000-square-foot base, or approximately 2,100 square meters. Part of it is the limestone foundation of the old Parthenon that was destroyed by the Persians. Other than that, the entire temple is built with pentelic marble. This is a fine-grained white marble with traces of iron that cause a faint yellow tinge that shines golden in the sunlight. Especially during sunrise and sunset, the building looks almost like honey. The marble was taken from the quarries of Mount Pedilicos, about 10 miles or 16 kilometers northeast of Athens. The summit is said to have had a sanctuary dedicated to Athena. Over 22,000 tons of marble were used to build the temple, which equals 22 million kilograms Panagia. The original structure of the Parthenon, according to Greekis.com, had 108 Doric columns inside and outside of the building. There were 444 coffered ceiling panels, which was a series of square grids of recessed decorative panels. We'll be putting up on the website whatever photos we can illustrating this as the original ceiling and roof of the Parthenon was destroyed by the Venetians in the 17th century. Beams made out of cedar formed the roof structure, which was covered with 9,000 marble roof tiles. The roof corners had spouts shaped like lion's heads to drain away water during rainy days. Each of the pediments, the peaked front and back of the top of the temple that supported the roof line, held 20 larger-than-life-size marble figures when the temple was finished. Low steps were built around all sides of the temple. The inside of the temple, or cella, was divided into two rooms, the walls entirely marble. The main room housed the statue of the cult of Athena that we described. The smaller room might have been used as a treasury for the city of Athens. The outer ring of columns holding the roof created a portico surrounding the temple. This would be crossed to reach the enormous wooden doors at the entrance, which were probably, probably covered in bronze plating, then decorated in gold and ivory. I haven't been able to find out what happened to the doors. Were they destroyed when the Venetians bombed the Parthenon in the 1600s? Were they stripped by the Ottomans for the gold, ivory, and bronze and trashed? I'm speculating the former. The Ottomans were using the temple as a munitions depot when the Venetians fired on it. Brilliant. If I were an Ottoman, I wouldn't store an ammunition dump in a doorless building with so many unhappy subjugated Greeks wandering around. The Parthenon is a perfect specimen of classical art and the ideal and architectural grandeur. Don't take my word for it. I'm going to list the experts. Clark calls the Parthenon an ingenious piece of architecture which somehow achieves a sense of harmony despite an uneven rocky surface. Worldhistory.org describes the many aspects of its sophisticated architectural refinements, but I'll keep it to one or two items. Apparently, buildings of the size and scale of the Parthenon can often appear curved when viewed from a distance. Because of this, there were actually no straight lines or right angles to the Parthenon, even though every feature on it looks perfectly straight. Quote, to give the illusion of straight lines, the Doric columns lean ever so slightly inwards, a feature which also gives a lifting effect to the building, making it appear lighter than its construction material would suggest. 
Remember, there's 22,000 tons of marble. The floor rises slightly in the center, and the columns are thicker in the middle. The four corner columns are the thickest of all. Quote, the combination of these refinements makes the temple seem perfectly straight, symmetrically in harmony, and gives the entire building a certain vibrancy. DDL says the temple is an excellent example of the golden ratio, a mathematical proportion that has been in use in architecture since ancient times. They go on to say the Parthenon's proportions are so perfect that the building has been studied by architects and mathematicians for centuries. Architects, artists, and engineers still study the Parthenon, trying to understand how the ancient Greeks got it so right. Joan Breton Connolly, in her book, Parthenon Enigma, says, the Parthenon sets the stage for everything we regard as our highest ideals, perfection in proportion and aesthetics. Smithsonian Magazine lauds its faultless proportions and balance. And 19th century French engineer Auguste Choisy called it the supreme effort of genius in pursuit of beauty. The influence of the Parthenon's architecture can be seen all over the world from the White House, the Lincoln Memorial, and the Supreme Court buildings in the US, to the National Gallery in London, the Palais de Luxembourg in Paris, and the Melbourne Parliament House. The magnificent temple housed the equally magnificent Parthenon sculptures, known as the Parthenon marbles. Pedicles had scored one of the greatest sculptors in the known world to decorate and adorn the temple. Phidias, the creator of the 40-foot Athena, According to Britannica.com, it is said of Phidias that he alone had seen the exact image of the gods and that he revealed it to man in his statues. His statues of the gods became the gold standard, the image shared by all of Greece and the world throughout history right up to today. When we picture Zeus or Athena in our minds, they are how Phidias depicted them. He created the colossal seated Zeus for the temple of Zeus at Olympia, seven times life-sized, and listed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This epic sculpture did not survive into modern times, but it was written about by the most respected historians of the ancient world. The Parthenon contained 92 exterior metapis, which were sculptured panels outside near the top of the temple, statues in relief, and a frieze circling the top of the inside walls. The different panels in the frieze illustrated the three great battles the Greek city-states federation fought against the Persians, Marathon, Salamis, and Pataes. Also depicted were the Olympic gods battling the giants, the fall of Troy, the Greeks led by Theseus fighting the Amazons. Can you picture it? Walking around and into the temple and seeing the history of your people's victories and the victories of the deities you worship in incredibly lifelike forms that literally extend and reach out of the walls as if those depicted were reaching out to visitors. Statues said to be so lifelike that the pain, anger, fear, and strength can be seen in their faces, their posture, and the strain of their muscles. Charlotte Higgins in The Guardian calls them miracles of sculpture. The artist seems capable of expressing the motion of water, even of air in hard stone. Their beauty is godlike. The sculptures weren't added to the walls. They were literally carved directly out of the slabs of marble that were on the walls. Jonathan Jones in The Guardian calls the Parthenon marbles the world's most beautiful art 
It has only a handful of rivals in the highest rank of artistic achievement. Think Leonardo da Vinci. Think Michelangelo, unquote. Jeffrey Hurst, a professor of art history at the University of Oregon, spoke about the Parthenon and its statues on Nova for PBS. He said the Parthenon was the greatest monument in the greatest sanctuary of the greatest city of classical Greece, the physical marble embodiment of their values, of their beliefs, of their myths, of their ideologies. It remains one of the principal legacies of Greek civilization and our own. The temple was a powerful statement of what human beings are capable of. To Clark, the Parthenon celebrated the common heritage of all Athenian citizens, and this is what made it dear to them. They could admire its beauty, its magnificence, but to them it represented Athens and Greece in all of its glory, and it was part of their everyday lives. It stood over them as they walked the avenues of their city, as their children played and citizens went about their daily business. It was always in their line of vision. It was the center of religious life in Athens. There were religious processions and festivals surrounding it for over a thousand years. Even after polytheism and paganism were pushed out of everyday Greek life, the beauty and the importance of the Parthenon remained, a symbol of democracy even as emperors now controlled the region. The Parthenon was the greatest, most idealized monument of Greek civilization. And the Greeks never stopped being proud of that. Millions of Greeks over thousands of years were born and raised and fought and died in view of the Parthenon. And those that weren't, like the villagers and the islanders and the children of the diaspora, like me, grew up hearing about the defeat of the Persians by the Greeks, of the magnificent Parthenon built by the greatest artists of the classical world, the envy of other civilizations coveted by Europeans whose art could not compare, degraded by Ottomans wanting to erase the greatness that was once Greece. Malina Makuri, Greece's modern goddess, beloved actress, and longtime minister of a culture, in addressing the British government about the Parthenon marbles that they've had in their museum for over 200 years, said, you must understand what the Parthenon marbles mean to us. They are our pride. They are our sacrifices. They are a supreme symbol of nobility. They are a tribute to democratic philosophy. They are our aspiration and our name. They are the essence of Greekness. So, now we know why our parents and grandparents and their parents and grandparents revered and displayed images of the Parthenon in their homes. And what the Parthenon was and is to the people of Greece, to all Greeks, wherever they live. And we know now what the Parthenon marbles are and what they mean. They aren't a commodity to be bought and sold or given away by occupying invaders or greedily seized by a politician benefiting from the oppression of a people. They're our history, our heritage, a reminder of what our ancestors accomplished and what we can strive for, our inspiration that we gladly, proudly share with the world. You can go to the British Museum website to see images of the mangled but still magnificent Parthenon marbles. Next week, we'll talk about how the Parthenon survived over the millennia, finally fell into dilapidation during the Ottoman occupation, and how it and other monuments of Greece were pillaged and vandalized by the so-called civilized citizens and government of Great Britain. Give them back. Thanks for listening. Greek Like Me is a Stealth Greek production. This episode was researched, written, and narrated by me, 
Pamela Deodes Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Thanks to Eduardo Gill for always helping us track down elusive facts. We're still under construction, but visit our website at stealthcreek.com for resources, photos, links, and more. Please rate, like, and subscribe. It helps us get noticed so we can keep making content about Greeks and Greek culture. See you next time. Yes, us. <laughs>